Welcome to the latest United We Stand podcast. We're in the middle of the international break. And we thought that not a lot would be happening, but this is Manchester United. Only the small matter of uh, the chief executive stepping down, Richard Arnold. We'll speak about that further on in the podcast. And this podcast is brought to you by Improve Easy. Improve Easy, helping fans across the country save money on their energy bills by installing home improvement measures such as free solar panels, free boilers, free insulation. All you need to do is text the word EASY to 60777 to see if you qualify for government funds. That's E-A-S-Y to 60777. Why not give it a go? You might be missing out if you do. Manchester United's last game was against Luton Town, a first league game against Luton since a match in 1992, which we're not going to dwell on too much because it was an awful day in Luton Town. Well, one of the reasons why Manchester United didn't win the league for the first time in 25 years. But Luton's story is an incredible one. I went there in April. I spoke to some wonderful people. My respect for the club and the town went up. My perception of Luton as a place wasn't the highest. It was even lower when I walked out the train station, which is no Grand Central in New York, let's put it that way. And then I went to Kenilworth Road and found a lot of people who really loved their club and players, officials. And I thought it's not a coincidence here that this team have risen from non-league football right up to the Premier League. And one of the most interesting people I spoke to was Kev. Kev's a, a Luton fan, Kevin Crow, And I'm delighted that he's on this podcast now just to talk for a few minutes about Luton, Manchester United, etc. Cheers for joining us, Kev. Cheers, Andy. Thanks for having me on, mate. Was that your first trip to Old Trafford? Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, it was it was always one, when you sort of look at that, um, the feature list, that like, you know, what are the, what are the ones you're going to take off? And I think for a lot of us, um, you know, Old Trafford's like, um, you know, it's that, it's pure Premier League, and it? it's 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 history. It's uh, the stuff we missed out on, you know, being my age. So yeah, the um, the game you, you talk about every time I speak to you um, <laughs> in, in '92. You know, I was kind of too young really at that point. Um, so yeah, you know, I'm 40 years old now. So I kind of my my sort of time sporting Luton has been missing out on the Prem and kind of um, negotiating the the lower league. So this is one that. You know, feels like proper Premier League away, away day, and yeah, it was great to be there. So, what did you make of the atmosphere? And you can be honest. We spoke to one Copenhagen fan last month who'd visited Old Trafford, and he just said, "I'm sorry, but apart from the small group of fans to our left, your fans are shit and were quiet for most of the game. Where are all your boys? It's all families, old men, and tourists. <laughs> when I was a child, I thought stadiums like Old Trafford and Anfield had the best atmosphere in football." You're going to get the shock of your life when you visit the park and stadium. Uh, nice one for that. What, what what did you make of it? Uh, look, coming from being a Luton fan, I think there's 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 a lot said about um, Kenilworth Road and, and and kind of I think a lot of it's a, a bit of a myth really about the atmosphere that we create at home because when you go every week, you know it's 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 never the um, the cauldron that sometimes is perceived to be. You know, if if a pretty um, relatively small one. But, you know, Old Trafford, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite quiet. Um, but I think, you know, we found that everywhere we've been in the Premier League. And uh, it's not that necessarily the home fans are rubbish or there's, there's something about the gentrification of the game and how expensive the tickets are. I mean, there is, that, all of that's true. But, you know, we, I think we know that you know, looting at home isn't necessarily set the world alight for the home fans. But that being said, you know, I've got a mate who's a, um, season to get hold of in Stratford End who said you know we were Luton fans are quite quiet and I, you know so we had that sort of conversation that you often get between home and away fans it's like well we didn't hear you the whole game so there was a bit you know we, yeah it was quiet in there but I think it depends where you're sat I think if you probably sat um you know up in the Stratford End you hear it a bit better and uh, I think if you were sat one side of the Luton fans you'd have said we were quite a good away away following but if you sat I think the people sat down a little bit um towards the other side and uh, we seemed a bit quiet, but no, it, it it wasn't the cauldron of noise that I think you know it can be created at, at Old Trafford. But you know, there's there's probably quite a few reasons for that. What did you make of Manchester? 
Yeah, I love Manchester. You know, I've got family. Um, I was actually staying up with some family in um, in Prestwich, so you know, we we spent quite a lot of time up in Manchester as a family. Um, yeah, and we we had held, like the Luton lot had um, sorted a a pub, um, and we're like they, they've started. There's this thing called Club eighteen eighty five where they kind of DJ um, some uh, you know route, route one football lad classics from some ten thirty in the morning onwards. Uh, so we we went there for a bit before. You know, it's in Yates and Primworks. Not, not, you know, it's a bit of a shame to miss out on a great pub city. But you know, it was good, good laugh, and everyone was there. But um, no, I love, I love, I love Manchester. You know, it's really. Um, I think one of the things that I have found, you know, with, with an away day like like Old Trafford, is the way that the club has really imprinted imprints itself on the community around it. So it's that you know, walk up to the ground and it's shops and pubs and. You know the amount of, you know the sort of stalls and like that whole hubbub around the, the ground. It feels like it's you know, this isn't match day. This is like, you know, the grounds here and the community lives around it, and it's all, it's all sort of it, it's similar to sort of the way um, Highbury um, used to be and kind of still is sort of around the, the Emirates. So sort of, I live in London these days, um, and you know that that's the that's one of the differences I think in that you know. The lower down the leads you go, the, the less sort of common that stuff is. So that's really nice, and it was it was nice to see all the tributes to Sir Bobby. You know, he's someone who, um, you know, obviously, you know, means a lot to people in Manchester, but means a lot to you know football fans in England, certainly to Luton fans too. And I think it was uh, it was it was good to be there around around the time just before his um, funeral um, to sort of see those tributes and stuff like that. So yeah, it's lovely. Was it a fair result? I spoke to some. One this week who uh, who knows, and he said big win on Saturday. Eh? We were we had decent creation. Uh, it was just a bit tight, mealing. Uh, fans left the ground feeling underwhelmed, but trust me, it was good. It's not easy when you play against a five-two-three when they barely press the centre halves. It means. They've got ten players to defend against eight. Essentially, it's very difficult when you're the attacking team. That said, uh, Garnacho and Rasmus Hoyland should have had a couple of goals. What was the Luton perspective on on the performance? Yeah, I think we're going to probably find this a lot this season. But um, certainly away from home, the way that Edward set, sets us up, it you know is it's more compact, and I think. Yeah, you, you, we're sort of defending with you know, eight men a lot of the time, and um, I thought that it, we, what we what we lacked this week was I think you know old Benny, who's our sort of flying left forward, um, Irish international, um, clocked as the fastest player in the league. Um, you know, he he'd obviously got a knock against Liverpool that we hadn't mentioned, and um, and he's actually joined up with the Ireland squad. Um, and they've sent him for a scan, so he was obviously carrying something. But he was kind of playing with a bit within himself. So, what we lacked that kind of outlet on the break that we had in the Liverpool game, which you know that we, we were turning sort of Trent Alexander Arnold on his heels and getting him behind and down the left hand side, Doughty and Ogbeno a real threat. You know, Doughty's kind of I think I mentioned him in the fanzine, but kind of um, he's down down that left hand side, got great delivery, and they link up really well because we when we were breaking. You know, he was or Benny was kind of playing slightly within himself, and you could clock it from the stands. And um, they weren't kind of he would be knocking it, knocking it into the into the channels and running onto it himself, like sort of kind of Gareth Bale in his prime. Um, and he just wasn't able to do that. So we were we were hemmed in quite a lot. And I think, yeah, I think one one nil on balance, you'd probably say, is was a fair reflection of the game. But um, you know, we we're relying a little bit on. Um, Kaminsky, our keeper, making these ludicrous, like worldly saves every week at the moment, and we're riding our luck a little bit. But we're going to, you know, the, the the gulf between the two clubs. You know, lots been said about the budgets, but you know, there's there's the, the, the quality in in those. You know, teams are going to get chances against us, and you know, we luckily we've got defenders who I think they said on match of the day like this Luton side really love defending, and that's the way it kind of looked. I don't know what you thought. Andy, but kind of seeing Mengi in there, sort of like lobbing himself around, making last-ditch tackles, and you know this is like Tom Lockyer's um, bread and butter, sort of you know talismanic centre half, kind of those 
brave tackles last ditch. It was annoying that the goal that you scored was the goal that you scored in a way because you know if you get undone by a flowing move or a bit of quality, you know that's that's what you expect, I think. But a sort of scrappy one from a set piece when everyone's sort of on their ass in the mud, you kind of think that's the type of thing we should be should be getting rid of in the mixer there. But um, yeah, it was a, I think probably a fair reflection. I think it's the looking at the rest of the season, it's it's like you know we're we're going to be close to teams and we're going to be tight. I think we're going to be closer to teams than kind of Burnley and Sheffield United potentially are in games. But it, you know if you lose those games one nil, you know you may as well have lost it three nil. I think it's um, it, yeah. Hopefully it's not the story the rest of the season because it, it's it's nice to sort of be able to match up. Um, against a team like Man United with the resources available, you know, given given where we've come from, it you know, it's a sense of real pride for people. I think your interview in the current United we stand is really good, and if you've not seen it, read it. There's loads of original stuff in the in the current mag, and uh, thanks to your generosity, we've made a donation on your behalf to a food bank in Manchester. So top stuff there. I loved seeing Pelly Ruddock. Um, at Old Trafford, he's played non-league football for you in England's fifth tier, and fourth, and third, and second. And when you came up, I thought, is he going to have the quality to play in the Premier League? And he does have, doesn't he? It's incredible. Yeah, he's he's done it. Do you know, people have been saying it about Pelly since he first came. You know, um, yeah, and every 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 step we've made up at upper division, he's. He, People have said he's not going to be good enough for this level. He's potentially dropped out of the side a little bit, and then he's and then he's come back. That the, the man's mentality is is incredible. He's I mean he's a real character, Pelly. He's um he's not really like many other Premier League footballers. Um you know, if you see him interviewed, um and if you see someone else interviewed, you'll see him kind of appear in the background. He's he's kind of the the, the, the heart and soul of the place. Um and you know you're talking earlier about. Kind of, I think it's, there's a feeling around the club that's like incredibly positive, and we've got this no dickheads transfer policy that we've had for a long time, and you know, Pelly is kind of the embodiment of of the the heart and soul of the place, and he, he so he's a laugher and a joker, and he's kind of keeps the morale up, and you sort of see that, and you think, well, maybe he's not a sort of serious character when it comes to the, you know the ninety minutes on the pitch, but it couldn't be further from the truth, you know, he's. He's out there and he's 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 in the midfield, saying I'm, you know I'm good enough to be here. I'm, you know I want to play. I don't want to just sit on the bench all season. You know he wants to push on. He wants us to get into Europe. He's you know he he wants us to establish ourselves in the Premier League, and he wants to play in the, at the top top level. Um, and you know you wouldn't you wouldn't put it past him. He's yeah, I think he's 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 at the moment we're in that sort of phase which he does have every every year or so when we make a step up. Where he's he's sort of out of the starting lineup a little bit at the moment. We've got Ross Barkley in and Andros Townsend. Um, you know, the, the, there's been a few signings over um, over the summer, and he's finding himself kind of playing bit parts in games a little bit at the moment. But what he's he's got this imperceptible impact that he has on the the players around him that that you know we we we're not going to be able to replace. And 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 when he comes on in games, things settle. Then there's an energy. He's he's direct in the way that kind of Barkley, you know, he's got this quality that we've never, you know, we haven't had it, you know, in a Luton side probably since you know um, the nineties. I've written about the, the club for over ten years now, and I used to kind of dream about Pelly in the Premier League, you know, Kenneth Road in the Premier League, Pelly walking out as you know, he's he's done it, and you know, all we need this season is for him to score one of his. 20-yard bangers that he, you know he pulls one out every every season or so, and um, you know that day is going to be someday. Finally, how are the former Manchester United players Tahith Chong and Ted and Mengi doing? And do you think you can stay up this season? Yeah, uh, Mengi's just been he's been absolutely brilliant. We've we've been a bit short of you know I think he wouldn't necessarily be in um, you know a starter, um, but with the injuries that we've had to our um, you know, central defenders. He's, he's in the side, and he's he's been absolutely brilliant the last few weeks. Um, I think is you know playing regularly at the level. You know, they're they're, they're all sort of learning on the job, and so you know, positionally sometimes they're 
that they're all a bit at sea sometimes over the course of a 90. But I mean, he's got all the attributes. He's just like, he absolutely loves the tackle. Um, you know, his like commitment is just, you know, is, is there. He's he, he's got that mentality, I think, to be a top player. So he's a really exciting one for us. And, and, and I think, you know, he's going to take some displacing when everyone's fit. Um, and Chong, um, Chong is one of those players that, you know, he played against us a few seasons ago. Uh, a few seasons ago, it was last season, actually. It's hard to... The, Time passes in a strange way when you're a Luton fan. Um, <laughs> we don't spend long in each division, but yeah, Chongy, um he was like devastating against us for Birmingham. Um, and when we signed him, it was like Jesus. He's um, you know his ability on the ball is is, is going to be game changing. Kind of the way he sort of like brings it in transitions and his, his his energy and skill. But he's been kind of used, I think, towards the end of games just to sort of you know when we're you know, we need to keep hold of the ball. Um, that more and more he's, he's looking like he's he's, he's pushing for a start a starting place now and I think it, you know really exciting different type of player to everybody else we've got on the side um, I don't want to say I think players who've played in Prem Academies I think we find they're really good at game management like even at a young age you know it's the same with Cabora who's at, at City um, you know it's, we've had shit houses in our time you know and fantastic ones but um, when it comes to kind of needing to buy, buy a yard, get a foul, you know, knowing when to go down and take the pressure off, I think that's that's something that Chong's got, um, and that we've we've not had sort of in, in recent seasons. It meant the world to both of them being uh, out there at Old Trafford. I think um, Mengi almost went in the wrong dressing room, didn't he, before the game was out of wind up? I don't know. Yeah, brilliant. Yes or no? Will you stay up? Yeah. Great, great. Why not? It's, it's um. Look, it's um. We could have a we could have a, sh a shocking run in December, and all of a sudden you're adrift. But um, I can see us just hanging on in there, and um, you know, there's there's some magic around the place at the moment, and you wouldn't put it past us. Thanks for your time, Kev, and all the best. And hopefully we'll bump into you in person at Kenilworth Road. Our next guest is Chris Blackhurst. Chris has done a brilliant interview in the latest United We Stand. There's loads of detail there, and you should check it out. Chris is a business journalist, author, former editor of The Independent, and he's written a new book, uh, The World's Biggest Cash Machine, Manchester United, The Glazers, and the Struggle for Football Soul. So, Mr. Award-winning business writer... <laughs> City editor of the Evening Standard. I've asked you all the questions that I wanted to ask you in United We Stand, but I've invited our readers to to put some questions to you. So, how about we go for it, Chris? Yeah, sure. Yeah, fire away. How do you set about valuing Manchester United, and does the apparent overvaluing by the Glazers does that seem valid, or are they based on future revenue streams? Um, well, the simple, the simple. I mean, the, the the simple answer to that is: you look, you can value a business. You value a business, um, obviously, entirely on revenues and and the assets it's got. Um, but Manchester United is different. Manchester United is what's called a trophy asset. Um, so if you apply hard um, hard accounting rules, you probably get an actual valuation. Um, which is probably of the order of about two billion pounds. I mean, that's been its market capitalization in New York for, um, for quite a while now. It keeps it's been going up and down a bit with the the sale, the non-sale, but that isn't really what the value is because everything about Manchester United is in, is in that name, and that in in accountancy speak and city speak is what's known as an intangible. It's something you can't really measure. I mean, it's about it's frankly, it's the same as me buying, um, you know, a Leonardo painting that uh, you know, which is worth could be worth anything over a hundred million, two hundred million dollars um, in terms of pure canvas and oil and a bit of art. Well, it's not worth that, but because it's so rare, because it's special. It is, and that's really what Manchester United is. It's a trophy asset. So you can't apply normal rules to it because 
No, no. And, and 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 if you're the Glazers, and um, heaven heaven forbid you are, <laughs> um, but if you're the Glazers, I mean, what happened is that they they saw. I mean, look, for eighteen years, they were not interested in selling the club at all. Seventeen years, they were not interested in selling the club. They rebuffed everybody. Um, they had approaches from. Uh, the Saudis, the Red Knights, um, there were various other people. They even, I think, had previous talks with Jim Ratcliffe. Um, they weren't interested. And then what triggered it for them, really, the, the thing that defined it for them was um, the sale of Chelsea. And when they saw what Chelsea got, and Chelsea went for um, give or take £4 billion, about 4.25 is what Todd Bowley and his consortium have spent finally to get Chelsea. You look at Chelsea, and if you think Chelsea's worth 4.25, Chelsea fans won't like me saying this, but United fans might. Um, Chelsea is a much smaller club. Um, It it doesn't have the stadium. It doesn't have the crowds. It doesn't have the reach, the global reach, which is the, the biggest selling point of Manchester United. I mean, that's the sad thing, really, which is... Uh, and I hate to say this because I know it means a lot to so many people, but it isn't really about Old Trafford. It's about the global audience, the global following of Manchester United. And that's why they get the big sponsorships, the big advertising. Well, you compare that with Chelsea. And Chelsea is small. It's not even the biggest club in London, um, probably the third club. Um and if they can get that amount of money, then it doesn't take a, you know, it doesn't take a genius to think, well, what's United worth? And that's where the Glazers are coming from. And then the second thing I'd add to that is that, um, is that the way we watch football is going to change. The Glazers are very aware that there's this thing coming in called augmented reality, which is the players will wear micro cameras on their shirts with and you'll be able to be, um, you know, you'll be able to be Marcus Rashford. You'll be able to be, you'll be able to be the referee. You'll be able to be Kevin, Kevin McQuire. Um, but, you know, uh, that's how it will work. And you'll be able to see the, the game entirely as if you were them through their eyes. Um, and, of course, you're going to have to pay for that. And they're very much aware of that. And then the next thing is the next World Cup is in North America. Um, that might herald yet another raising of the bar in terms of finance in the game. Um, online betting is in its infancy still. Um, so all these things pile in and they make the Glazers. There are people around the Glazers who have said that United could be worth £10 billion. Okay. You don't, you don't sound as though you believe me. No, I do. I can. I can see. I mean, the, the, no. the problem is. I mean, the sad bit of this is that it's really, and this is really where I talk about in the book that that title, the struggle for football soul. The struggle for football soul is this game that we all love. That is at the heart of our community. It's at the heart of our lives. And you know, you 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 click on the first thing you do every morning is click on the football news your team, um, you, you follow the results, you follow the match report, you know, everything. And you go to the games. But unfortunately, for these big owners, it isn't really about that. It's about, well, it's about money. And in United's case, they've got this huge global audience, which has been built up over years because of the legends, because of what happened in 58 and then the, the European Cup and then Bobby and George and Dennis uh, and then the class of 92 and Alex Ferguson. No other club has that story. And, you know, parts of it obviously are very sad, but it's an amazing story. And that explains the romance and the appeal of Manchester United. So Jim Ratcliffe is on the cusp of doing a deal to acquire a percentage of Manchester United. The figures reported are around 1.5 billion. Have you got any thoughts on why he might be doing that? He's convinced it's a, a pathway to complete control of Manchester United. 
we know that things are seldom so simple with the Glazer families. What are your thoughts? Um, well, I'm a bit like you. Uh, I admit to being baffled um, um, because I, I look as a bit of me that thinks I would not want to be 25%. I mean, why should I give 1.25 billion to the Glazers? Why should I spend a, 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 the best part of 250 million on doing up Old, old Trafford and Carrington, which they've not done? I mean, it's bizarre. I'm, I, you know, it's the same as someone coming into my house, buying the back bedroom and saying, oh, by the way, um, I'd like to give the house a lick of paint as well. And you say, well, there you go. Thanks very much. Um, I mean, it's, it's very strange. Um, but what it means is that, first of all, he gets enormous PR. Now, that's a hell of a price to pay for PR, but there's no doubt he gets that. He gets huge kudos. Um, um he is in position A, should the Glazers ever decide to sell completely. It makes it very hard for somebody else to come in and buy the club when you've got a guy sitting on 25%. So you put all that together, he's in position A. Um, whether they've actually put a, a, de a timeline, I don't know. I don't think any of us know whether there's a timeline that Joel Glazers said to Jim Ratcliffe, Jim, we're going to be out of here in three years, and then it's yours. I mean, the other questions, though, are has Jim Ratcliffe got enough money? Um, I mean, you know, he's a very rich man, richest man in Britain, but um, a lot of that money is tied up in his chemicals company, Ineos. Um, United is a super rich person's game. I mean, it is not for the faint-hearted. I mean, you know, let's say the Glazers want six billion. Okay, six billion. You've probably got to put another billion aside on top of that for bringing Carrington up to speed, sorting out the dear old Cliff, um, improving Old Trafford, um, and then we haven't even mentioned players. And United fans want and expect the best players in the world. Um, so um, you put all that together, has he really got enough money? I'm not sure. It may be that this is a sign that he hasn't got enough money. He might think he's going to get the money in the future. I don't know. The Glazers, how have they run Manchester United, in your opinion? You mentioned the cliff there. In March 2019, one of the senior people at the club um, got in touch with me, said, I want your thoughts on things. Can you come to the cliff with me? We walked around the cliff. I spent four hours at the cliff. We looked at the history. I offered my opinions on what should be done with the cliff and where the money should go. I was thankful that Manchester United had kept the cliff, unlike City, Liverpool, Everton, who'd let go of their previous training grounds. And four years on, absolutely nothing has changed at the cliff. And for me, that is emblematic and systematic of what the Glazers do. Everything is protracted. Everything eventually happens after sustained uh, criticism. How do you rate them as owners of Manchester United? Because if, if I am to play devil's advocate, a lot of money, not their money, but a lot of money has been squandered. Yeah. Um, on one level, um, they've actually been... Um, okay owners um, in the sense that the, the money has been made available for players money has been available um, for I mean you know Old Trafford is falling down a bit but you know it's still not bad but the truth is um, and they've obviously brought in uh, world class managers like Mourinho, Ten Hag Van Gaal etc the problem is um, and this really gets to the heart of it they don't care. They don't care about the club. They do not give the impression of caring about the club, and um, it's not just that they don't go to the matches. That's bad enough. But they, you know, the cliff is a very good example. The cliff is where it's where it all began. It's where the um, the, the the team was resurrected after 1958. It's where Samat trained them. And it's where Sir Alex trained them. The class of 92 were not at Carrington. They were at the cliff. And for United fans, that's a special place. Now, you know, I don't know what you suggested, but, you know, and I would say turn that place into a museum for Manchester United fans, make it a shrine, 
but make it a place as well where you're training young players. Um, it's in the centre of Manchester, Salford. Um, you know, it's where you can bring on young players. You can instill in them, you, you know, the magic and the passion of Manchester United, but make it a great place. Um, and they've not done that. And, and they just do not. I mean, look, it's, a, it's a cliche, but they do not show the love. And football, um, where football differs from a normal commercial investment is that um, it's what I said earlier. It is something that is in people's hearts. It is at the heart of their community. I grew up in Barrow in Cumbria. Barrow Football Club is central to that town. United fans might laugh. Barrow is way down the pyramid. But for people of Barrow, it's hugely important. Um, <coughs> Stockport, Stockport County, Macclesfield, name your team. I support Fulham. Um, you know, but, and we all have our teams and, and it's part of our community. It's part of our lives. And the Glazers never realised that. The other thing I'd say is that they took the, the way they did business. And obviously, this is, some of this is in the book. But the way they did business was really guided and led by their father, Malcolm. And Malcolm was one hard, tough businessman. He, he bought things and tended to run them down. He bought. He didn't invest in them. Um, he, buy, he liked to buy tired old companies, tired old assets, and flog them to death, literally to death. Um, the intriguing thing, uh, uh, finally, on that, by the way, is that there's no history in the Glazers, as I can see, of any of them ever really doing partnerships. They don't do partnerships. Malcolm Glazer never did partnerships with anyone. He was his sole operator. Um, impossible to deal with in many respects. That's quite interesting as how, how they will partner Jim Ratcliffe. Oh, sorry. I didn't turn my... Oh, shit. I'm sorry. Um, do you want me to redo that? No, it's fine. What's happened? Did you not hear that? That. No, it's oh, fine. Right. It's okay. fine. We can carry on. Okay. I can just take that 10 seconds okay. out. That's fine. Okay, sure. I, I bumped into a former American professional football player the other day and conversation switched to the Glazers. And he said, look, I'm really sorry. He said, most owners of American sports assets are beloved by their community. And he gave me five or six examples of the families, the scions who owned major sporting franchises, as he as he called them in, in major US um, cities. And he just shook his head and said, I'm just so sorry it's not like that um, with the Glazers. Do you think it's purely transactional for them? Because we are told that Joel Glazer is a Manchester United fan in so much as he's done his office out, he watches the matches, even if he's not at games in in Old Trafford, or do you just think he, he doesn't get it? Because you, you say Barrow, I've been to Barrow, I've watched my brother score an equaliser <laughs> at Barrow oh, no, on a Tuesday no. night. Oh, it was absolutely fantastic in front of 27 <laughs> away fans. And I went again last year. I went by myself last year to watch Barrow against Oldham Athletic, and I just right. I just about avoided a divorce, but I live to tell the tale. <laughs> I saw I saw the Emlyn Hughes statue. I went to the Naval yeah. Museum, and the football club is so central to the part of that hard bitten town. And yeah. anywhere across the UK, it's it's like that, and across Europe. Yeah. And yeah, I just don't get a sense that the Glazers get that. No, they don't get it. I mean, in the book, I talk about Malcolm Glazer. Very rarely gave interviews. He only gave them if they were really to help him get a get a leg up in business. He gave one in 1992, which is in the book, where he was, he, he decided that he wanted to own a major, a major sports franchise. Now, even that in itself tells you something because he wasn't, no, he wasn't bothered which sport. And that tells you something because, you know, I, I, I say I, I wouldn't want to own a cricket team. And the Glazers did try to buy a cricket team, which also should tell you something else. They've also been around Formula One. Um, anyway, in 1992, he tries to buy the Baltimore um, football franchise, American football, NFL. And in front of the Baltimore paper, the local reporter, 
he says that his, his idea is that the team shouldn't just play in Baltimore, but play in three other cities across America. Um, and it will be America's team. And that was a purely commercial thing in his head, a marketing gimmick, calling it America's team. He didn't care two hoots about the people of Baltimore and the community and what it meant to Baltimore to have a team in the NFL. And when he bought the club, and I'm sure you remember this, Andy, he bought the club. Joel Glazer only said 33 words about owning Manchester United. He used the word franchise twice. And the rest of it, what he said was pure guff. I mean, it sounded, I say in the book, it sounded like early Donald Trump, to be honest. Um, and he doesn't use the word club, team, player, fans. Um, I mean, there's nothing. And that really is the problem. Um, the Glazers see the club. Um, I mean, look, you know, Joel Glazer, I am told, and you've heard as well, um, he wouldn't see me, by the way. He was going to, and then he cried off at half of the course. Um, but his office in Maryland is decked out like a Manchester United museum. And when United play... You feel like you're missing out? Because it seems like everybody's either starting a side hustle or becoming their own boss. And you know what they're hearing a lot? Cha-ching! It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run and grow your own business. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide, whether you're selling football memorabilia, old football shirts, salt, fine art prints, you name it. Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can successfully grow your business. Covering all your sales channels from a shop front ready POS system to its all in one e commerce platform. Shopify even gets you selling across social media marketplaces like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. It's full of industry leading tools ready to ignite your growth. Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without needing to learn new skills in design or coding. And thanks to 24 7 help with an extensive business course library. Shopify is ready to support your success every step of the way. What's lovely about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control that takes your business to the next level. And it's time to get serious about selling and get Shopify today. This is a possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.com co.uk slash united all in lowercase go to shopify.co.uk forward slash united to take your business to the next level today that's shopify.co.uk forward slash united um and i'm told that he um when united play him and avi um don't take phone calls and they, you know, everything is focused on the game and they, they dance around the room when United score. But okay, fair enough. But that doesn't square with not going to Old Trafford, not showing any interest, not showing up at Bobby Charlton's funeral. I mean, look, you know, you can give an excuse about not wanting to be a distraction. Uh, it's probably the greatest player in United's history. Um, you know, fantastic servants of football in the club. There's superstars turning up. Alex Ferguson's there. They're all there, apart from the people who, are, who own the actual club. Um, I mean, personally, I think it's appalling. And, you know, that to me, again, just showed that they don't get it. Originally said he was going to see you, did he? Yeah, I was told that Joel Glazer would see me. Um, uh, to be honest, I took it with a pinch of salt because I, I know other journalists have been down the same route. I was assured he would. And he was giving it serious thought. And then um, and then I just got this message saying, you're so sorry. He's sorry, he's too busy. It wasn't going to happen. Um, I mean, other journalists have actually, there was one journalist, I think, in the past who even tried to what we call doorstep him, you know, turn up at his office and didn't get anywhere at all. Um I mean, it's extraordinary behaviour, and I don't follow it really. I mean, 
they're not stupid people. Um, they may be shy people. People are allowed to be shy and reluctant about publicity. I get that too. But when you own something that is so special to people, to millions of people around the world, and you don't engage with them in any shape or form, in any meaningful way, that really is appalling. The journalist who turned up and doorstepped him was Laurie Whitwell, a colleague of mine. To be honest, if you turned up at my office with that aircourt, I'd close the windows as well. Sorry, Laurie. Hope you're well, mate. <laughs> so you don't sound too optimistic about a future um, of Manchester United with the Glazers, with this hybrid potential ownership with um, Sir Jim Ratcliffe. Um, look, I want to be optimistic. I actually think like, I'm not a United fan, um, but I, you know, I'm aware of the history and I always look at their matches and their results and things. And United matters an awful lot to football. I mean, there may be fan. I'm sure Liverpool fans won't like me saying that, but Liverpool matters to football as well. And of course, I want them to succeed. Um, but and, until the Glazers have gone completely. Um, until they don't have a majority stake in the in the in the club, I don't see much changing. Um, and um, you, you, you know, as I say, I'd love to be optimistic, but maybe Jim Ratcliffe can wave a, a magic wand. Um, I mean, the other problem I've got with Ratcliffe, or the other issue in my head, is that I don't see anything in his track record, apart from building a chemical business. Um, on the sports side, it's not been good at all. Um, and if he's really going to bring in uh, Dave Brailsford, who I've, you know, fantastic manager of the of a cycling team, but you know, football isn't cycling, and it's a totally different sport, totally different way of doing things. And so I, I'm I'm a bit I'm a bit sceptical. Do you see anything happening with the charges against Everton? Chelsea and the 115 charges against Manchester City. Is this a level um, playing field? No, and um, I mean Chelsea have found a very clever way they think to have got round everything by giving people these long contracts. Um, how that will work out in practice once they're no longer in the team, um, I'm not sure. Um, City, I think, have been look. You know, don't get 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 a rip, but I think they've. They've played as close to the wind as they can with, with the rules. I, I think United, by the way, probably have been on the right side of the rules. Um, and that's partly the result of the fact that the commercial side of the club has been so successful. I mean, the very odd thing about United is that it's almost like it's two clubs. There's the players, the playing side, the bit the fans care about. And then there's this commercial giant, which the fans never see, really, apart from when you see new sponsor or a new hoarding going up or some guys in suits turning up in a box at Old Trafford. But that commercial side, which Ed Woodward developed, mainly in secret in London, it's all in the book, is astonishing. I mean, it, it led football. It still leads football. I mean, let's not forget that United... Even last, even in the summer, um, you know, not had a great season. Even in the summer, they they strike the biggest ever kit kit deal in in football history with Adidas. I mean, it, it, on it goes. Edward Wood has gone. Richard Arnold announced this week that he was going. Do you think United might suffer commercially because those people are not there? I'm not sure about that. I think uh, if I'm if I if I think about it, I think um, and this sounds a bit trite. I think it's quite. I was going to say quite easy, and easy is probably too strong. But I think I think finding commercial people is not that difficult. Um, the hard part is finding the the football people with the chemistry and the knowledge and the you know who and and United obviously haven't had that for many years now. Um, on the commercial side, I mean, Ed Woodward was a banker from JP Morgan. Um, so was Richard Arnold, actually. He was, a, um, I think he was there. He, was, he worked with, with Woodward. And, um, you know, I think you can find people who can do that side, who can strike the deals. Um, 
I don't think they'll suffer commercially. They'll only suffer commercially if the if there's disaster on the pitch. And so far, the fan I know the fans are unhappy, but they've not had a disaster. I mean, you know, if you include the Newton Heath, the old Newton Heath, United have been relegated five times in their history. Old Trafford got down to three and a half thousand. Well, they've not had that. And um, if that happened, then the commercial side probably would dry up. But they're nowhere near that. So, you know, and, and if the Glazers and Ratcliffe, whatever this new partnership is going to be called, if they can resurrect some form of European Super League, um, yeah, whether they're guaranteed to be playing Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juventus, Bayern Munich, uh, uh, you know, but they're quids in. So... I, I'm not too worried about the commercial side. It's the football side where the imponderable is. Final two questions. What's your view on private equity owners and multi-club ownership? Um, I think private equity owners are very bad for the game. Um, private equity owners are looking for a return. They're looking for an exit. Um, in the book, I recount an, an interview, a speech that Todd Bowley gave to a private equity conference um, he didn't talk about club, he didn't talk about team, he didn't talk about players. Um, he talked about assets, he talked about portfolio, he talked about investment. And once you use language like that, which is the language of private equity, it doesn't square with football. Um, private equity, they have a duty to make a return for their investors. That's what private equity is. And um, so, you know, the investors want to return. Um, they're not people buying into football for their love of football. Um, multi-club ownership, I'm less bothered about. Um, I mean, I don't think you can have multi-clubs, multi-club ownership in the same league. But I wouldn't. I don't really have a problem with the European model of having smaller, smaller satellite clubs that feed the big club. If it's a way of keeping the smaller club alive, a bit like the the old crew, uh, crew Alexander Liverpool relationship. Um, I don't really have a problem with that if it keeps the small club alive and they still get good players. And okay, if you go and watch them, you're not watching United's first team, but you might be watching the reserves or the under 21s. And I know I've just said that football's at the heart of the community, but if the players are good players, um, that will satisfy the community and. I don't really, it doesn't bother me so much, the multi-club ownership, as long as they're in different leagues. Finally, what's your view on the massive influx of money in football and the obvious corruption that it's bringing in? Is it your view that the game is essentially circling the ball or do you see reason to believe that perhaps the national FAs or the wider governing bodies might actually grow a pair of bollocks and do something? Um... Well, I think I I, I, dis, I despair, really, because football changed completely. I mean, in the book, I recall the old model was, um, you know, a rich guy, self-made businessman, makes his money, puts his money back into his local town football club. The last Premier League person who did that, arguably, was Jack Walker at Blackburn Rovers. And if you ever saw the interview that Jack Walker gave when when Rovers won the Premiership, he was crying. He was crying his eyes out. Um, now, the point about that, for those who are into the history, is that that was the season before Rupert Murdoch came in with the big money for Sky. Um, and that changed football completely. And once you get the American owners coming in, who they're not interested in relegation, you don't have relegation, you, you rig the league so that the worst performing team gets the best players. I mean, imagine if we did that here. The worst performing team in the, you know, gets the pick of the best best young players. Um, you, you know, it changes it com completely. And, and the, the sad thing is, and I talk about this in the book, that I'm a season ticket holder at Fulham. I'm sure you're a season ticket at Old Trafford. These clubs actually don't want season ticket holders anymore because they can't put the prices up to what they think they can really charge. Um, they can put up the price of the ticket, but not by much. What they want are what's called, we're called legacy fans. And in legacy in business eyes, 
the word legacy is a dirty word. It's what you use about the old shops on the high street. Um, and what they want are tourist fans, and they want tourist fans who take their kids to Old Trafford, make a weekend of it, spend a load of money in the mega store, um, eat and drink at the ground, um, and all that stuff, and buy, you know, and spend a lot of money. I mean, give you an example. My season ticket at Fulham, um, I think it works out about £35 a game in the Premiership, £40 a game, something like that. It's about £800, let's call it 40 quid. The match day ticket, if you could get one, sold by Fulham. If people returned their ticket for the United game a few weeks ago, match one match, £160. That was for the most expensive ticket, wasn't it? In that stand that's yeah. never going to be completed. But that's why we saw yeah. the protest after 18 minutes with the Fulham fans yeah. holding the cards up and the organiser was on a previous podcast. And you're totally right in everything you say. It's yeah, it's almost I mean, dyna- dynamic pricing. It's pushing towards I, that. I, I mean, I, you know, I talked to somebody at the club that when, when, Joel Gla- when they bought the club, Joel Glazer did a simple calculation and he worked out that Every Tampa Bay Buccaneers match, an average fan was spending about thirty or thirty-five dollars on popcorn, hot dogs, beers, etc. At United, it was less than a fiver; it was nowhere near a fiver. And you know, the, the the English model, which is the same the world over, is you meet your mates before the match, you have a few beers in a pub or bar, you go to the ground, you watch the game. As soon as the game's over, you leave. Um, and you go back to the pub or, you know, whatever. And point is, you're not spending money at the ground. And Joel Glazer found this really baffling. He could not understand why the, you know, part of course is that you, you can't have alcohol with the fans. But the American model is, if, I don't know if you've been to major sport in America, but, you know, every time you look up, there's somebody trying to sell you a hot dog or a bucket of popcorn. Or they've got those things with beers and they're, Filling up, filling up glass of pints of beer—it's um, a completely different model. I've been there. I've seen it. I can't say I'm comfortable with many aspects of it. Two hundred dollars for Manchester United's youth team against uh, Wrexham in San Diego. I oh, shock! It's shocking. I wrote about it. Uh, my readers cared about it, and then I actually went to the game, and the people who were there didn't give two shits it was like yeah. oh this this is what we pay for stuff like this and yeah. it was completely normal to to the people who were there and it was full yeah. of the fanfare that you said and the, the jets yeah. came I mean, over look, from the, 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 the nearby base and the, the national anthem was sung and it was same sport different way of watching it i go to fulham um i look across at the big new stand there are seats in that stand that are going to cost three they're costing three thousand pounds most expensive seats in football, £3,000 and you're watching Fulham. Um, you know, it's crazy. And um, uh, and the people who pay those, look, they might be able to afford them and they might be passionate about Fulham, but it, it's going in the wrong direction. Chris, I thank you for your time. I'd fully recommend your book, which is now on sale, and I'd fully recommend the interview which you've done in the current United We Stand. Okay, good luck. Thanks, Andy.